Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, survivalists. This is the Crux True Survival Stories. We are here, your host Casey McIntosh and Julie Henningsen. Julie Henningsen is going to be leading the story for us. How's it going today, Julie? Great, Casey. Excited to be here. I've got another great story for us today. We're going to bring you on a heart-wrenching tale of heroism and tragedy that unfolded on the slopes of Mammoth Mountain in California in the Sierra Nevada mountains. In the heart of California's Sierra Nevada, Mammoth Mountain stands tall, an active volcanic giant reaching an elevation of 11,053 feet. But beneath its picturesque surface lies a deadly secret, fumaroles, which are natural vents through which toxic subterranean gases escape and can lurk in the snow-covered landscape, especially in winter. Ooh, that sounds treacherous. I learned a lot when I was researching this story, which I'll share with you today. It's definitely following along the theme that you and I have established where you tell harrowing stories of somebody who finds themselves in a crazy situation and survives. And I tell very tragic stories where multiple people find themselves in a horrific situation and most of them die, but some of them survive. (laughs) You're the Debbie Downer. Of the group that it is turning into that. I'm not sure how that's happening, but that's been kind of the pattern. And uh, yeah, and I'm just reinforcing it with this story. You just like the dark side. That's all. Yeah, I guess so. Next time I'm going to look for something that's a little bit more uplifting okay. or at least has a more uplifting outcome. <clears throat> Sounds good. This story is uh, something that took place in 2006, in April of 2006. And I actually remember when this happened. And as you know, Casey, I teach a lot of wilderness medicine classes. And over the years, I've used this story as a learning tool to teach the concept of scene safety, which you know everybody's familiar with. If you've ever taken a first aid class, you don't want to run into a dangerous scene and turn yourself into a patient when you're supposed to be a rescuer. And the examples that first aid classes always use are things like live electrical wires or grizzly bear attacks. You wanna make sure that the bear is not still actively attacking the patient before you go in to help. Things like that that feel really obvious and feel like, yeah, you don't need to tell me that. That's 
human intuitive nature. But this is a story uh, that is more nuanced and it really illustrates the importance of uh, making sure a scene is safe before you go in to help somebody and how that can be a little bit more challenging than it sounds. Whenever I hear the word scene safety, my brain basically turns off because I expect it's going to be super boring and you're going to hear the same thing that you've heard 12 times. But it's good to back it up with a story that's entertaining and captivating to kind of drive home that point because it doesn't have to be boring, but also because your brain sort of shuts down when you're in a stressful situation. And so if you already have that mindset before you go into something, you're more likely to think about it. Yeah, that's so true. And I think everyone's brain shuts down when they hear those words because it is boring, which is why I've taken to telling this story because it perks their brain right back up. And it's a true story. And when I researched it, I realized that I was getting a lot of the details wrong. So <laughs> now I'm going to tell it a lot better. And um, yeah, and it's, it's pretty remarkable. Okay, so April 2006, it had been a week of pretty relentless snowfall, blustery winds, creating a pretty treacherous environment on the slopes of Mammoth Mountain, a really popular ski resort. Part of the daily responsibilities of the ski patrollers at Mammoth is to secure a snow fence that is erected to keep skiers away from one of the mountain's most dangerous volcanic vents. There's several volcanic vents, otherwise known as fumaroles, on the mountain, and they are fenced off and signed very well to let people know to not ski near them. So the daily task of securing these fences was a little more challenging this morning because they had feet and feet of new snow. So there was a lot of new snow on the ground and the snow was kind of covering up the vent itself, the hole in the ground that was the vent in a way that it was sort of hard to see where the edges of the opening were and where there may be drifts of snow that didn't have a whole lot underneath supporting them. So that morning, the vent, the fumarole, was about 12 feet wide, smaller than it normally was because it was obscured by the snowfall, and 22 feet deep. And a group of seven ski patrollers took on the task of securing the barrier around this area. Patrollers John McAndrews, who was 37 years old, and Jason Juarez, who was 35, both from California, quickly fell 21 feet through this opening as the snow gave way underneath them. It appeared that hot gases coming from the vent had hollowed out the snowpack, leaving the two men standing on unsupported snow unknowingly. So they fell into this vent McAndrews, known as Scotty, his name was John McAndrews, but he went by Scotty. He was a newcomer to the ski patrol, and he had just been voted Rookie of the Year by his team members. So he was having a really successful first season on the mountain. Coworker James Juarez was a five-year member, more of a veteran of the patrol. He was a former Marine, and he loved his job so much that he continued working even after he broke his back working on a ski run. And incidentally, he had also recently lost his girlfriend, who was also a member of the ski patrol. She had died in an avalanche while off duty that same in that same year. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That is terrible. Yeah, it is terrible. So these two patrolmen plunged into the fumarole 20, 22 feet down. And there were five other ski patrollers that were helping secure the area that began trying to dig through the snow, trying to reach them. The survivors reported that their cries were heard for a few minutes, maybe two minutes, and then they stopped. It was silent. They were asking for help followed by pretty immediate silence. So one of the other patrollers by the name of Charles Walter Rosenthal, he was 58 years old. He carried a small bottle of oxygen and he went in to, to try and pull these men out to try and help them. And with the oxygen, he had intended it for a Scotty and he had intended it for Scotty and James, but he didn't really have any for himself. What's the inside of a fumarole looking like? Is it ridge-like so you have something to climb on? Or could you describe that a little bit? Yeah, I read it described a lot as a cave. So it sounded like it had kind of a solid ground and a soft landing. Um, It didn't sound like a crevasse where you're kind of going down a fissure line, you know, for a deep, deep distance. It sounded like a cave. Okay, that's helpful. Because I'm trying to picture this guy going in there. Like, does he have a rope? Is he just... He's just going for it. He's going rogue. Yeah, he was just kind of going for it. I think he was following his instinctive response um, that we might all have if we saw, you know, coworkers in a cave only 20 feet away. Like, it feels like that might be something that could be a quick fix. But he found himself in this vent without oxygen and also succumbed to asphyxiation along with Scotty and James. So is he just carrying the oxygen tank with him? He didn't actually have it on? Oh, no. No, I think he was bringing it with him, intending to give it to the other men. Gotcha. So a little bit more about Charles Walter Rosenthal. As I mentioned, he was 58 years old, and he was a researcher from the University of California, Santa Barbara. He was married. He had kids. And he was also the president of the Eastern Sierra Avalanche Center and kind of an expert in snow hydrology um, and remote sensing of snow. So really well-known and really respected uh, professional and a longtime ski patroller. Now, as all this was unfolding, a fourth patrol member named Jeff Bridges did don an oxygen mask on himself, and he climbed in to try and help and save the three patrollers who were already in the vent. He too was overcome by fumes, by gases. And then a fifth rescuer, Steve McCombs, he was the first to hook himself to a rope. He held his breath with no oxygen 
and he plunged in. He plunged in by rope. He reached in and grabbed Jeff Bridges and pulled him to safety, pulled him out of the vent and actually saved his life. He was unconscious by that point and on the verge of asphyxiation, but Steve uh, pulled him out quickly enough that it saved his life. That's pretty crazy. I can't imagine just trying to hold my breath to go into a vent that had already asphyxiated three other people. Three others at this point. Okay. Three others. Yeah. So that just goes to show you, like you were saying, you don't really have access to your, you know, problem solving, decision making, critical thinking brain at that point. A lot of times you're just making choices, you know, from your instincts and from your spinal cord and your your central nervous system is not guiding you in a way that you might if you were to read a textbook that would tell you how to handle a situation like this. And that actually comes up a little bit later when they investigated this whole situation of kind of what kind of training or what kind of expectations um, should these patrollers have been offered or presented with before they found themselves in this situation. So there was some controversy over their training and the resources that they had available to to handle what they were given. Okay, now i got to let the dog back in. So to kind of sum it up, um, the incident involved two patrollers falling into the vent, a third patroller going in after them, and all three of those folks not making it out alive, a fourth patroller going in to help and becoming unconscious, and then a fifth patroller going in, holding his breath on a rope, grabbing the fourth patroller, pulling him out and saving his life. So five people involved, three who did not survive and two who did. And actually there were two additional patrollers, as I mentioned, so there were seven people altogether working on um, securing this fence. And um, those folks as well um, suffered from some carbon dioxide poisoning uh, and survived, but they spent a night in the hospital and really needed, you know, significant medical care to bounce back from this exposure. So at the end of the day, seven patrollers were involved, three who did not survive, and the rest um, suffered from difficulty breathing, nausea, feelings of weakness, all things that carbon dioxide poisoning can cause when you're exposed at concentrations higher than uh, what is safe for human oxygenation. So this is the part, Casey, that I just found interesting. Like when I think about carbon, the carbon oxides, um, the first one I think of when it comes to poisoning is not carbon dioxide, it's carbon monoxide. And that's much more well understood as a highly toxic um, gas to humans. When carbon monoxide is inhaled, it binds to the hemoglobin in our blood, which reduces our oxygen carrying um, capacity. And that can lead pretty quickly to carbon monoxide poisoning, something we hear about a lot, you know, something that most of us are aware of. Um, And that's associated with headache, dizziness, weakness, nausea, pink lips is one thing we sometimes think of with that confusion, loss of mental status high concentrations of carbon monoxide when you're breathing it. And usually it's happening when you're asleep, like in a heating system or running a camp stove in a confined space, a snow cave or a tent or a vehicle, and it can be fatal. But carbon dioxide, which constitutes only about 
0.04% of the air in the Earth's atmosphere um, is heavy. And when it's released from things like volcanoes or subterranean vents, things like this fumarole, especially in cold conditions, it kind of just sits down low in depressions and is pulled downward. So you can get really high concentration of carbon dioxide in um, natural depressions in the landscape in areas where it's released in, in higher quantities. Um, typically, when carbon dioxide is released, it becomes diluted quickly to really low concentrations in the surrounding air. And even on mammoth in the summertime or when there's not this giant kind of roof of thick snow over it, it just gets released and gets absorbed into the air. And it's not this, you know, toxic, poisonous gas hole um, that's a danger to all around it the way it was on this particular day when the cold weather, the snow blocking it from kind of getting um, absorbed into the air, surrounding air, and increasing the concentration of it was what really was making this a deadly situation for these patrollers. So to put that in perspective, atmospheric sampling data from this area um, showed carbon dioxide levels ranging from 97 to 99%, which is Really, really high. Normal air contains about 0.04% carbon dioxide. So this was like a big um, pit of poisonous carbon dioxide. And unlike carbon monoxide, it doesn't bind to your hemoglobin um, and deoxygenate you that way. It actually just, if it's your lungs full of carbon dioxide, you can't breathe air and you just kind of asphyxiate due to lack of oxygen. So it's sort of a more direct route. That's really interesting. Yeah, I thought so too. And even more interesting, I'm going to go off on a tangent here, but I think it's interesting. Um, I kept running into this concept of mazuku. Have you ever heard that word, mazuku? I don't think so. So in geology, a mazuku, which is a word that in Swahili means evil wind, is a pocket of carbon dioxide rich air that can be lethal to humans or animal life. And apparently it's a, a problem in certain places in Africa. These mazukus are formed in depressions where carbon dioxide accumulates low or near to the ground by gravity, since as I mentioned, it's heavier than air. Um, and usually exposures to concentration levels above about 10% is where you would get into a range that's lethal to human life. So there's areas near the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Rwanda over a geologic feature called the Albertine Rift, where, um, in, where, where an estimated 100 people die annually every year um, bordering a lake called Lake Kaivu due to exposure to toxic levels of carbon dioxide. So these deaths usually occur at night they're usually when people are sleeping near ground level. Um, and there was even an incident in 1886 where 1,700 people and 3,500 livestock were killed along a lake in Cameroon, Africa, when about um, 300,000 tons of carbon dioxide was released to the surface of the lake, just emitted through the lake, um, killing everybody around. So this is like a natural disaster 
rare phenomenon that I wasn't super familiar with before I kind of dug into this a little bit more. Beware the Mizuku. That is entirely creepy. I can't imagine. I mean, are these areas, do people in the area know that this exists as a threat? Yeah, they know it exists as a threat. And I think, you know, historically back in the day, they didn't know what it was about this, you know, carbon dioxide pools. And that's why they called it um, the evil wind. Uh, Cause they, you know, there was mysterious how these people were, you know, dying in droves overnight. But now of course it's pretty well known what the phenomenon is. Yeah. Back in the day, they probably just thought it was some bad spirit that came to some bad evil spirit. Yeah, exactly. An evil wind blowing through town. So anyway, I had no idea that was a thing. The things you learn, you know, just one more thing to kind of look out for. There are so many. So Julie, tell me, did the way that these um, ski patrollers were trained, has that changed as a direct result of this incident? Yes, it has. There was actually a pretty significant kind of aftermath that occurred um, at Mammoth Mountain and probably in other ski areas that have similar features. Um, but, but after this occurred, there was a lot of questioning amongst like OSHA and other occupational safety uh, organizations and professionals as to whether or not this fumarole should have been designated as a hazardous confined space. And, you know, hazardous confined spaces in the state of California, and I'm sure everywhere else, um, have requirements through OSHA to keep certain types of rescue gear on site, including breathing equipment and ropes, and also to be um, associated with regular confined space training, which uh, was something that maybe had not been done previously or maybe not done to the extent that OSHA thought it should have been. And there was actually a lawsuit from a couple of the victims' family members making the same case that, that this was a known hazard and that their family member who perished um, was not offered adequate training to, to navigate that situation. So ultimately, Mammoth was um, fined by OSHA approximately $50,000 for these violations. The citations included not conducting proper internal atmosphere testing, not using proper engineering controls, and not providing proper res er, and not providing proper respirators for escape or rescue. That really does not seem like very much money in 2006. It's like your insurance would cover that, you know? Yeah, I'm sure the insurance covered it. Um, and there are also a lot of statements from the, the mountain and the general manager and the community about just how devastating and tragic this loss was. So I'm sure in addition to the monetary fines, there were a lot of broken hearts and changes made um, to their standard operating procedures just as a result of honoring what I'm sure was a huge regret for a lot of that community. Not to be totally morbid, but I was wondering if they recovered those bodies or if they felt like it was too risky to do that. Yeah, that's such a good question. They did recover the bodies because there's some um, information from one of the doctors that treated them, just commenting that by the time they arrived to the hospital, there was just nothing that could have been done. Um, so they were transported, um, but I didn't uncover just how the, exactly how the bodies were recovered. I imagine they did get the respirators and the ropes and all the right equipment 
and with a little more time delay, we're able to get them out of there in a safer way. Doom and gloom, Julie. That's I know. So we're gonna just teasing. (laughs) Just giving you our time. We're gonna highlight. We're highlighting the survival of Jeff Briggs and Steve McCombs, who uh, made it out of this situation alive by the skin of their teeth. Um, Yeah, and tragically uh, remember John, Scotty McAndrews, James Juarez, and the brave hero who jumped in after them, Charles Walter Rosenthal. We just got to hope that somehow this saves someone else's life you know i mean the fact that it happened and now people are more aware of this risk especially if they're working in those types of environments like hopefully it's keeping someone safe yeah you know it's crazy to me to think that this just is there right i've never skied at mammoth mountain but to think that there's this you know poisonous gas vent right on the side of the mountain having ski patrolled for many years in montana where we don't have those kind of volcanic features on our ski hills um, that are open to the public. It's wild that they just roped it off every morning and people skied around it. Have you seen anything to indicate that skiers have ended up in these vents before incidentally? I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know that this isn't the first time the vents have been in some way responsible for skier deaths. I did see a statistic um, indicating that this wasn't the first time. Maybe not a mammoth, but you know, in the scheme of things, this posed a fatal threat to somebody, to a skier. Well, and I mean, if you consider the area where I am, I don't know if it happens as much where you are, but um, tree wells, which are essentially, they're essentially the equivalent of what you're describing, obviously not as deep, but posing the same risk, asphyxiation, um, you know, <laughs> when you fall into one. Yeah. And your face is full of snow. Next time I'm pulling my kids out of a tree well, I'm going to be worried about whether or not it's full of carbon dioxide. (laughs) Well, it's, you know, they're just filling it with their own carbon dioxide. That's the problem. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, I have to say that at least once a year we hear stories of someone going into tree wells up here. So it's a pretty common occurrence. Very common occurrence. Yeah. Well, thanks for the story, Julie. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Um, let me think. No, I think that's it, Casey. You know, knowledge is power. Just another uh, bit of info to add to your survival skill, backcountry, navigation, medical quiver. Scene <laughs> safety. It's not always as straightforward and boring as uh, we think it is next time you take that first aid class. And yeah, and uh, considering, you know, preventative measures before we rush in to render help. Right. And just adding the one more thing to the list of things in the world that are nightmarish. Yeah. <laughs> that can reach out and grab you and you didn't even know it existed. Right. That can take you while you're sleeping. Yes, literally. Unaware. Literally. All right. Thanks for listening today, Casey. Before we wrap up, we'd like to ask you for your support in spreading the word about the Crux True Survival Stories. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to visit our Instagram page at The Crux Podcast. We encourage you to share our latest posts on your stories, helping us reach more fellow survival enthusiasts and storytellers. If you haven't already, 
please consider leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback means the world to us and helps us continue to bring you compelling stories of survival. If you have any survival stories you'd like to share with us or topics you'd like us to explore, feel free to write us at thecruxsurvival at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for your unwavering support. We're a small team with big aspirations, always striving to bring you stories that resonate. Your tuning in means the world, and we are deeply grateful for your continued engagement. Wishing you all a fantastic week filled with inspiration and adventure.